mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his splendor is above the earth and the heavens. He has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. And there are loads of other exhortations to do that. Psalm 99, 99 verse 5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. The Bible is chock full of exhortations to praise and to worship. When we come to church, we sing songs of praise and worship. Why do we do it? I think for some people, the, the, the area of praise and worship is a music genre. They think it's a kind of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a style of music. For some people, I think they think when they come into our churches that the music is the warm-up act. You know, it's, it's to get people going a bit so we can preach, and it's almost like a, a bit of entertainment to go along. But that's not what it's about. There's so much exhortation, so much emphasis on praising and worshiping God in the Bible. Now this leads to an interesting question. My daughter is now 25, but when she was little, she, she used to ask the most interesting theological questions. When she was about five years old, um, she would ask the questions that we adults sometimes don't ask because we feel embarrassed. Um, we, we shouldn't feel this way. And one day my wife was driving along in the car in Joburg and Jeff was in the booster seat at the back. And I, I can't remember what they're talking about, but suddenly it went quiet, and after a while, this little voice said to Sandra, Mommy, we, we must praise God. She said, Yes. The Bible says we must praise Him in the morning, yes. And in the evening, yes. And in the midday, yes. And we must praise Him when we lie down, yes. And we must praise Him when we get up, yes. And she was quiet for a while. She said, Has He got a problem? <laughs> you know, we have a giggle. But if you knew a person that spent so much time saying, hey guys, praise me, you'd worry a little bit about ego, wouldn't you? you kind of think, are they insecure? And yet we know, we absolutely know, that the God who created the heavens and the earth is not suffering from insecurity. You know, I, I had a little bit of a giggle a while ago because the... Uh, Mr. Dawkins and, and, and the Human Society stuck up those banners on the side of buses in, Johann in, in London saying, there is probably no God, so just enjoy life. And the Christians got so cross. We all wanted to kill Richard Dawkins. We all wanted to get him. How dare he do that? And I kind of thought, do people think God's sitting up in heaven and going, oh crumbs, maybe I don't exist. This is a real threat to who I am. God is secure in who He is. You know, and, and as misguided as those guys are, He loves them dearly and wants to draw them in. He doesn't want us to hate them. He wants us to love them and draw them in. But God is not insecure. There must be a different reason why we are exhorted to praise God. It's not to bolster His ego. It's not to feed Him. If I read the Bible and I see reveal the character and the nature of God, I see that His entire motivation for His relationship with us is His love for us. So therefore, me praising him must be good for me. It must be something that's a blessing for me, because God doesn't have me do stuff just to amuse himself. So I hope I can articulate what's in my heart over the next little while and, and, and just look at some aspects about 
what this is all about. And perhaps just to start, it's important to, to define praise and worship because we are inclined to roll these two things together. We just use a word called praise and worship. And we think it's the same thing and it's, it's music at the beginning of church. And it's not really that, is it? To define praise, if, if we go to the Oxford Dictionary, it says to express warm approval or admiration. Express one's respect and gratitude, especially in song. Praise is by definition boasting about and talking about someone. It's recalling what they have achieved and who they are and what they've done and being expressive about that. Praise is always demonstrative and expressive. You can't praise quietly in your heart. You can worship quietly in your heart, but you can't praise quietly in your heart because when you're praising, you're telling other people about somebody. You're demonstrating. You are boasting. The word means to boast. We, at some other stage, we can go and we'll have a look at what the Bible actually says praise means. But by definition, it's talking about and boasting about someone. What is worship? There are loads of definitions. The one I like the most is one from a guy called Tom Engels who heads up a ministry called Psalmody International. And Tom says this, he says, Worship is the outpouring or outflowing of the whole being, spirit, soul, and body, under the divine sense of favor in the presence of God. Simply put, praise is talking about God. Worship is loving and talking to God. If I can give you a simple thing to, to maybe, I normally use my wife for this, but she's sitting here, so she'll be embarrassed. So let me talk about my daughter. Let me praise my daughter, because right now, she's, she's not here. In fact, probably at this moment, she's somewhere in a boat on Cardigan Bay. Um, she's out there involved with dolphins and things. Um, and she's probably out in the sunshine telling people about the local population of bottlenose dolphins in Cardigan Bay. But let me tell you about my daughter. She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. I, I think she's, she's a picture. She's lovely. Tiny little thing. Um, she, she's bright. She's a really intelligent girl. Has done really well for herself academically. Did well at school, did well at uni. She's got a degree in zoology. She's very brave. Uh, she'll take on anything. Ruggedly determined from when she was a tiny little thing. When I, I tried to teach her to ride a bicycle, uh, I put those little training wheels on. And I stuck her on it and that bored her very, very quickly. So she said to me very early on, Daddy, take those things off. So I took them off. And I was going to do the thing you always see in the movies where you hold the back of the seat, you know, and they pedal and then you let them go and they ride into the sunset. And, it was one, and she said to me, leave me alone. And we had a driveway in Joburg with standard roses on either side and a wrought iron gate at the bottom. She said, you go inside. And I watched through the window, she got on the bicycle and she rode into the roses and scratched herself and drove into the gates and banged her head against it and fell off two or three times, but half an hour later she could ride a bicycle. Very determined little girl. She's a great musician, lovely pianist, plays the violin. Now I'm boasting about my daughter. I'm talking about her. But it would be a very different thing if she walked in the door and came towards me, because then I would go to her and I'd say, hello, book. I love you, and I put my arms around her and embrace her. And there's a difference between talking about her and actually being in her presence and loving her. And if you look in the Bible and you look carefully, you will see that when people worship, they worship in the presence of God. 
In the Old Testament, they worship when God manifests his presence. And let's just talk about that term. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He always has been. Since he spoke this creation into existence, he's been everywhere in it. How does that happen? I haven't got a clue. And anybody who tells you they can explain it, you pray for them. Okay? Because he is beyond and above understanding. We've sung about that. But he's omnipresent. He's always everywhere. But we're not always aware and responsive to his presence. Sometimes he makes himself known to us spontaneously. Moses is is trekking to the back of the desert and he sees something weird and there's a burning bush and he goes over and God reveals his presence to Moses. But sometimes we seek out the presence of God and worship is in the manifest presence of God. Best example I've got, I always think in terms of, of, of simple examples. I'm a teacher. The occasions when I get to a class before my class gets there, I teach in the secondary school of my school. And I'll go into a classroom and there's no one there and I close the door behind me and I've got stuff ready. I'm maybe at the back looking at, at a notice board or something and the door opens and I'm behind the door and a class comes in. Now I'm in the class. I'm there, but they don't know it yet. And they conduct themselves as if I wasn't there. Sometimes it makes no big impact. Sometimes it's noisy and boisterous, and sometimes you hear conversations that they wouldn't want you to hear. And then someone closes the door, and there I'm standing. And my presence, although it's always been there, is manifest. And they respond differently when when they know but I'm there. Let's face it, guys. If you had always reminded yourself of the presence of God, if you had always been fully aware that he was with you every moment of the last 48 hours, think about what conversations you've had. Think about what you've done. Some things might have been different. That bit of an argument you had with somebody and some of the things you said and some of the things you did might have been different. Truth of the matter is, we are not... At this stage in our lives and in what's going on in the universe, always responding to the presence of God. We were created to, but we're not doing it at the moment, and we'll talk about that. But worship is responding to that presence of God. It's when God's presence is brought to our forefront, and it's not just talking about Him, it's responding to Him with love and gratitude, and actually, it's loving on Him. The Greek word for this proskuneo. It means to prostrate yourself in front of him. To almost The, the word is literally like a, a dog licking its, its, its master's hand in adoration. Now, God's not calling us a dog, but it's that devotion and that response to someone that we love. That's a very brief praise, worship, separation. And where I'd like to go today is to mainly look at the whole concept of what is this thing, worship, and, and what's it all about? What are we being called to? And to do that... I'd like to go back a bit. I always refer to, to the fact that I think that, that Julie Andrews got it right in The Sound of Music. She said, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And so let's start at the very beginning because if we look at this relationship we want to have, we've got to start in Genesis. What's this worship relationship? What's this thing that we're trying to establish with God? What is it all about? And I'm looking for some notes now. Just Talk amongst yourselves for about two seconds because I got them in the wrong order. Yeah, okay. Um, if we start at the very beginning, let's, let's have a, a run through the Bible. Genesis, creation. 
The Spirit of God moves upon the face of a formless, void planet with no light and no life. And he says, let there be light and there is light. And God begins a six-day building program. Now, bearing in mind, this is the person who spoke the universe into existence. Okay? He just spoke it into existence. I love Louis Giglio talks about the fact that as he spoke, planets and suns rolled out of his mouth. I mean, that's a, that's a picture that's it's hard to... The, the, the roaring power just rolled out as he... But he takes six days to do what he does on the earth. Because on one day he does something, and when it's done, he looks at it and he says, that is good. And when God says it's good, that means it's good. But I always think there's probably a little bit left out, because he probably said, but not good enough yet. Because God begins by separating land and, and water, and he makes sure that there's a, an atmosphere with air for us to breathe. And he begins to put plants and birds and animals. I love the care and attention that God takes. When God puts living creatures on the earth and plants, he doesn't say, right, we need trees. What kind of a tree, apple tree will do? It's got blossoms, it's got leaves, it's got fruit. So let there be apple trees, and the whole earth is covered with apple trees. And then he said, right, let there be a fish in the sea. What do we have there? Cod's good. Cod will be good with chips, so let there be cod. You need some birds? Well, chickens can fly, lay eggs. Pretty good when they're roasted. Let there be chickens. God brought diversity. Loads of different fish, different birds, different animals, different plants, different trees, because God was creating a love nest. God was creating a beautiful place for what he was going to do. And when God is ready, and when this beautiful place is ready, God creates man in his own image. A unique creation. He creates us, body, soul, and spirit, in his own image, in a way that we can relate to him directly, face to face, no holds bars, nothing between us. And he puts Adam and Eve in this wonderful environment. And he does it because by doing that, God is creating the possibility for the one thing that he wants that he can't do for himself. God can make anything. God can move anything. God can be anything. But what God desired were people to love him by choice. I love my wife. We've been married for 32 years now. What made it special for me when I stood waiting for her with my knees shaking like castanets at the front of the church? When the wedding march started, my best man had to grab me by the shoulders because it was fear and trepidation. But what, what was amazing to me when I looked around and saw her coming up the aisle was she'd chosen me. There were loads of other guys she could have chosen. There were loads of other guys that wanted her to choose her, but she chose me. I have no idea why. She's generally quite an intelligent person with good taste. But she chose me, and that's what made her coming up the aisle to marry me so very, very special. It would have been dreadful if coming up the aisle was a beautifully constructed, perfect robot programmed to marry me. 
And when the minister said, do you, they said, I'm programmed to, I have no choice. Of course I do. This is what I'm built. She could have said no at any time. God placed a free will within us. We could say yes and we could say no. And it was a risk. And God knew the risk. God placed it within Adam and Eve to say yes and to love him and to trust him. And he stacked the odds in their favor. He put them in this incredible environment and he said, you can do anything. You can have anything. It's yours. Enjoy it. This this beautiful place that I have said is good is yours. Now there's one thing. Because if I get free will, if somebody's allowed to choose, then there's got to be the ability to choose something else. Otherwise there's no choice. So God puts one choice. There's that one tree. Don't touch that one. It's bad for you. It will harm you. If you trust me, if you love me, leave it. And he puts Adam and Eve there to have fellowship with them, to love them. They are created in his image. They are the two beings that can bring the joy to God's heart of someone choosing to love him, who can give him something that he can't make. And to do that, he takes this incredible risk. And you know what? When God took that risk, he knew what the outcome was going to be. He knew about the pain that separation would bring. He knew about the battle that mankind would need to go through to find a way back or for him to bring us back. And it was worth the risk to him. When you think of the destruction and the pain and the sorrow that sin has brought into this world, and God does not sit dispassionately at a distance and watch mankind suffering and watch the fruits of sin and say it doesn't matter. God weeps and God feels the pain in his heart of what's happening. But he was prepared to go through that because of what he would get, those who would choose. And so Adam and Eve make the wrong choice and sin comes. And I want to take you to one of the most moving verses that I find in the Bible. Genesis 3 and verse 8. I find this a very, very moving verse because in a short space, it just shows us so many things. It says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. They hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. You want to know what heaven is? There's a glimpse of heaven in this verse. There's a glimpse of heaven in the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, coming to walk in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. An implication that this is what God did. God fellowshiped with them face to face, without ritual, without without hindrance, without a need to protect them from him, without a need to keep them at a distance, God would fellowship with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening in this beautiful place that he created for them, and he would relate to them as people created in his own image with a depth of intimacy that blows my mind. At the same time, we read the fact that Adam and Eve hide from this because something has happened. Sin has come in, and sin has made them aware and self-conscious. 
And sinners turned their focus on themselves and brought something between them and God. And there's a barrier. In the beginning, the barrier is a couple of fig leaves they sew together. Something to protect them from God. Something to keep a distance. There's a breaking down. Man has changed. God will never, has never, can never change. But man has changed and suddenly there's distance. Suddenly something is broken. And guys, my heart breaks a little bit every time I read this. But think about the heart of God at this moment. If you've got kids, you know what it's like to look for the love of your children and to enjoy it. And the disappointment if you feel that you're being pushed away. And God has this, this breaking down of this perfect thing that he's created. I want to say this to you. The Bible is about God's plan to restore that. It's all about that. That's the story of the Bible. All the other stuff, it's about God restoring that. The plans, the prophets, the miracles, the people, the nations, the covenants, is about God bringing us back to a place where we stand before him without any barriers. But it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. Because the first thing that happens is Adam and Eve are no longer able to function as they did. Something has come between them and God, and God has to protect them and the plan from them. This is quite frightening, guys. Look at this. If we just go a bit further on. If we go to Genesis 3.22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. He can't perpetuate this thing forever. He, he can't be allowed to be in the position of privilege that he was before. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Guys, God's anger is real, but this was not God's revenge. This was not for God to feel better that he's punishing them because they've done something wrong. They needed to leave this place because they couldn't function anymore in the way that they'd been designed to do. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Suddenly and profoundly there's separation between God and man. And that separation, as sin takes, sin's like a virus. Sin begins to affect everything. Sin begins to break down everything. We were built to live forever. Have a good look. This is not going to live forever. Huh? Praise God, when I get to heaven, I'm getting new stuff. I'm, I'm, this this earth suit of mine is being rejuvenated. I'm really hoping for a better one. Because this one, you know, I kind of peaked at 18 and it's... It's gone downhill from there. Particularly, uh, I've got what I call pirate's disease. I've got a sunken chest. It's sunken from here down to here. You know, it's, This is not as good as get. Everything's begun to break down. And we, we can track it through the Bible. Genesis 5, we find God is still relating to man in some occasions face to face. It says about somebody, this is wonderful. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Genesis 5. Uh, in verse 22, 
Enoch walked with God 300 years, then other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. He walked with God, and then he was no more. There is still the opportunity for some people who put themselves in a relationship with God where there's an intimate relationship. It's not the same as it was. It's not in the garden. It's not in perfection. But it's still close. It's still intimate. Let's just track it. Let's see where it gets and where God has to start taking drastic action. Exodus 19, if you'd like to turn, and verse 10. God has brought Israel out of Egypt. He's rescued them. And he brought them through the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai. And God wants to establish his covenant with these people. He wants to get them moving down his plan. He wants to lay out the plan for them. He wants to meet with them. Listen to the precautions that God has to take to meet with mankind now. Remember the garden. Remember what Adam and Eve had. It said, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. God has to protect mankind from his presence because we can't stand in it anymore. Sin's virus has taken us further and further and broken down this wonderful intimacy that God intended. And we're at a point in Sinai where God's got to say, put limits around the mountain I'm going to appear on. And if somebody goes in there, you don't even go and touch him, you shoot him from a distance. Because there's a separation between God and man. We can't, at this point, be in his presence. Sounds a bit like a malevolent God, doesn't it? But he's not. I try and explain it to my, my kids at the school. If there was a, a power cable running down from the ceiling to the floor here carrying 11,000 volts, I need to stay away from it. It's not that that power cable intends me harm by nature. I just can't handle 11,000 volts. If I walk over and put my hand around it, I'm going to fry. It's not the plan of that cable to damage me. It's just made of something that I can't be around. My body creates a resistance for that power when it goes through. It just burns me up. And mankind has got to a point where the sin in our lives makes us unable to function normally in the presence of God. And I say normally because we were created in His image. It's bust. It's broken. It's not functioning perfectly. God is reaching out. God is keeping relationship. God is working out his plan. But it's not perfect. There's got to be this barrier. Let's just track it a little bit further. How am I doing? Yeah. I've got to watch time. Um, if we look at Exodus chapter 26 and verse 31. God is talking to Moses and he says, I want to meet with the people. I want to travel with you. I want to manifest my presence. I want a place where people can come and worship me. I want them to know that I'm their God. So we're going to build this traveling temple. We're going to build this amazing tent. And in the tent, there are going to be 
areas and places that people moved through to come into the presence of God. You came to the outside of the tabernacle and you brought thanksgiving uh, sacrifices and you moved in and you cleansed yourself and offered cleansing offerings and you washed yourself at the labor and symbolically you were acknowledging, I'm not able to come into the presence of God. I've actually got to think about and repent of and consecrate myself and these rituals were a way of showing inner repentance and consecration and then you could get ultimately to stand before the Holy of Holies but you couldn't go in because this is what stood between you. Make a curtain of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the ark of the testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. A beautiful gold-decorated curtain, but its purpose was to stand between man and God. Its purpose was to maintain that separation for man's protection. Once a year, the high priest would go through all the rituals of atonement, and he could go into the Holy of Holies, and people stood outside in great fear to see if he would get out alive. His priestly garments had bells around the bottom, so people could hear him moving around inside and know that he was alive. He wore a long sash which hung out under the curtain so they could drag him out if he dropped dead in the presence of God. It was a scary concept for people who were created in his image to walk in the cool of the evening in the garden. There's now a veil. There's another reference to veils. Exodus 34, 30. Moses gets to be in the presence of God a lot. And it says in Exodus 34, 30, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. And in verse 33 it says, And when Moses finished speaking to him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak to him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what had been commanded. And they saw his face was radiant. And then Moses put the veil back over his face when he went to speak to them. Even being in the presence of God, someone that God says spoke to him face to face, the presence of God would reflect so that the people could not really handle it. That's where mankind through this virus of sin was brought to in the relationship with God. And God does not want that. And so God eventually brings to pass his plan. And God sends his son and says, right, you couldn't keep the law, you couldn't do what I asked you in the garden, I'm sending my own son, I'm coming down as my son, I'm coming and I'm going to do this for you through my son. And Jesus comes down and does everything that Adam couldn't do. The second Adam fulfills the purpose of God. And innocent of any sin, he's taken and he's brutally murdered on the cross. And as he hangs on that cross, something happens in eternity. God gathers from the beginning of time through the life of man on earth, the sins together, and he puts them together into one place and he puts them on the shoulders of his son and Jesus becomes so that God doesn't look at him with sin. So that he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? It gets dark. And Jesus dies and the price is paid. 
The price is paid. And here is, for me, maybe the most exciting verse in the Bible. This is, this is probably my most favorite verse in the Bible. Matthew 27, reading verse 50 and 51. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, and they came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into holy city and appeared to many people. What happened? What happened? You know, guys, when Jesus died on the cross, God's plan was fulfilled. Death was defeated. It was done. God could have chosen so many ways to celebrate. Heavenly choirs like at the birth of Jesus. He could have made the desert bloom. He could have done what he wanted. You know what God does? Jesus cries out, it's finished. And God says, let's get rid of this veil. That's the first thing he does. So we don't need this anymore. And he comes out and he walks Jerusalem and the ground shakes and the presence of Almighty God brings people up from the dead because God manifests his presence in Jerusalem. Never again do we need a veil that God puts between us. Never again do we need God to protect us from himself. The blood of Jesus does that. The blood of Jesus does that. You know, I, I think quite simply, when I was a kid, we used to get those sweets of the different colored translucent papers, and you'd look through them and everything was blue, or everything was purple. And God looks at me, he's got like a Jesus paper in front of him, and I look like Jesus. <laughs> Amazing. I know, I know what I look like. Not just physically, I know what I look like inside. God doesn't count that. He says, that's already been on Jesus' shoulders, that's done. That's paid for. I see Jesus. I don't need a veil for Jesus. It's, it's back again. It's available to us. It's available. Breaks my heart in a good way. Second Corinthians 3.18. Another one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know what happens when the veil is drawn aside and I choose to stand with an unveiled face in the presence of God? He changes me to be like him, because I'm supposed to be like him. I was created in his image. I build veils, you build veils. Busyness, arrogance, pride, self-seeking, all the things that we do, we're too busy. God is everywhere all the time, but we don't always notice him because we, we've got our little personal veils that we're carrying around. I'm busy with my job, I'm busy with my relationships, I'm busy with the... And God is there saying, look at me. Because when you look at me, you will be changed to be like me. You'll be restored. You'll be built from glory to glory. It's a process to be more like him. There's a spiritual truth there, guys. If you look in the Psalms, it talks about people who worship idols. And it says they've got lips, but they don't talk. They've got ears, but they don't hear. They've got eyes that they don't see. And those who make them become like them. You become like what you worship. When we gaze on the presence of God, we become changed. Glory to glory. I love, you know, I, I, I was 
Just wait. <laughs> I was wondering about the story thing. Because I read in the Bible, the glory of the Lord descended. And, and the glory of the Lord came upon him. What is the glory of the Lord? You know, they were kind of glowing in the dark. What does it look like? So I thought, because I, I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar, but I've got the books. Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. Wonderful book to have. You can get it on, it's on the phone now. Everything's on the phone now. But I went to go and have a look. What is glory? What does it mean? And I thought, maybe I'll get a clear explanation by looking at the Greek word. So I looked, and the Greek word for glory is the Greek word doxa. So great, now I look what doxa means. And I looked in the, in the concordance, and doxa means glory. It didn't really solve my problem. But if you've got a strong, you know you can dig into the root words. Where did it come from? And as I began to dig down, I saw something that jumped out at me. It means very apparent. The glory of God is when God is very apparent. When God is very obvious. How do I show the glory of God in my life? How do I get changed from glory to glory to be more like Him? It's when I get the stuff that's not like Him out of the way. I heard a very simple story. A little boy walking through an art gallery and he heard this ding, ding, ding noise going on and being curious, he followed it and found himself into a room where a sculptor was working. Chiseling out, beautiful statue of a charging elephant. Gorgeous, almost done. And the little boy said, that's amazing. How do you do that? And the sculptor said, it's not that difficult. You get a big block of granite and you just chip off all the parts that don't look like a charging elephant. And that's what God does in our lives when we stand in his presence gazing face to face. If we allow him, he chips off those parts that don't look like him until his glory is revealed. Until we begin to reflect and show the glory of our Heavenly Father. Because that's what we are designed to be. That's the end game. Guys, what is church about? What's the Bible about? What's evangelism about? What's it all about? Evangelism is about bringing people into the kingdom of God. To do what? To be in an intimate relationship with God without separation, being changed from glory to glory to be like Him. It's the end game. It's the final purpose. Read the end of the book. Revelation. People responding to the presence of God. You know, I love the picture in the throne room of God in Revelation. You've got these 24 elders that just keep worshipping Him. They fall down on their faces and they throw their crowns in front of Him. And then they, they, they get up again and they see Him again and they... And they're not automatons. I, you know, as a child, at Christmas time, you'd walk around the shops and they'd have all these little things in the shop window, Santa Claus and whatever, and little watchmakers, and they'd do the same thing over and over again because they had a little motor that made them do it. That's not what's happening in the throne room of God with the elders worshipping God. Every time they get up off their knees and they see him, they go, oh, wow! And joyously, they begin to worship him. It's spontaneous. It's what we were created to be. That's the reality. Now guys, when we talk about praise and worship corporately, and, and I'm going to end now because that's maybe a, another thing. We have an opportunity sometimes, it's not just about music. Music's a vehicle. Music's one of the things we can do. But any time that we decide to take away the veils that we've built, whether it's by beginning to praise Him in music, and as we begin to, the old chorus says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, 
and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we begin to remind ourselves of the goodness of our Father, and we begin to put aside those things that stand between us, we find ourselves by choice standing in his presence. And you can do that in the shower, and you can do it here, and you can do it driving your car. Because what we really need to be doing, the two Greek words that are mainly used for worship, one's proskuneo, to prostrate oneself in front of him, the other one's latreo, and it talks about worship as service. How would it be if I did my job constantly aware of the manifest presence of God so that what I'm doing is a response of love and gratitude and the way I'm doing it to God's presence? What about if I brought God into my relationship with my wife and my family and I was constantly reminding myself of his presence and bringing his glory into that? Would I not land up living a lifestyle of worship? Not just having a worship session, not just having a worship time, but walking in a realization and a remembrance of the manifest presence of God in my life. We serve an awesome, yeah, let's, let's not forget this. There's a jolly good reason why we praise and worship him. Not just because of what, he's worthy of it. He's earned every little bit. He's worthy of it. And he says, look at me. Come and get to know me. Bring me into everything. Back in South Africa, many of you know, we've got Songormas, witch doctors. They have huts that they decorate with all sorts of things to scare you. Monkey skeletons and skulls and all sorts of things. And there's loads of ritual and stuff and smoke and bells and whistles. And the whole thing is, you've got to be afraid of me and respect me, but keep your distance because if you come too close, you'll find there's actually nothing here. God says, come. Come as close as you like. Dig as deep as you like. Scratch the surface, dig in, look. Because the more we get to know him, the more there is. And that almighty God, if I may be so bold as to link it back again, wants to walk with you in the cool of evening. God doesn't look the same anymore, but God hasn't changed. And that desire to be intimate with us and to allow us to be intimate with him and to call him Father. In fact, call him dad. That's an awesome thing. And that's what God wants. All the other stuff is to bring us back into relationship. God didn't create the earth to have a celestial fish tank floating in the in the universe with little people all living on it and doing stuff and he can go in the evening and peer inside and see what we're doing. God created a world to put us on so that he could be in it with us and love us. I think I'll stop there because if I start, the next thing is going to lead into something awesome. I don't get into trouble the first time I'm up here. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that everything that you do in our lives and everything you say to us and everything that you require of us every instruction, every bit of chastisement, whatever you bring into our lives is because you love us. You've proved that love to us, Lord. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the risks that you took knowing that we would let you down. Thank you for the restoration that there is through the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the price. 
And Lord, I pray that each one of us will draw closer to you and desire that intimacy and take away the veils that we build in our day-to-day life that put you out of sight. We invite you, Lord, in this place and in our lives to walk very apparent and very obvious in all that we are and all that we do. In the name of Jesus, amen.